Welcome to the New Money Review podcast. I'm Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. Financial markets go up and down from day to day, and they usually fall faster than they rise. But when does normal market turbulence tip over into, into a systemic collapse? And how should policymakers react when that occurs? In the latest New Money Review podcast, I interviewed Stephen Kelly, who is Associate Director of Research at the Yale University Programme on Financial Stability. The programme's mission is to create, disseminate and preserve knowledge about financial crises. Listen in for a half an hour discussion on systemic risk. Stephen, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Could you start by telling listeners about yourself, your area of work? Yeah, so I, I work at the Yale Programme on Financial Stability. We were founded uh, somewhat in the aftermath of 2008 uh, with sort of the recognition that you know a lot of work a lot of great work goes into crisis prevention. Um, but as we saw, you know, around the world in the 2008 financial crisis, there's huge costs to, to even small delays about what to do when the crisis is already here. So we are really focused on a during crisis firefighting type playbook. Um, when the crisis is here, let's focus on, you know, how do, how do we keep the banking system standing, how do we keep the economy moving forward? So we are focused on on crisis fighting, sort of break the glass playbook. Okay, how do we distinguish a systemic crisis from kind of the normal volatility, ups and downs, you know, everyday occurrences we see in financial markets? Yeah, so I mean, the, honestly, there's sort of an ephemeral bit to it all because part of it is just that feeling uh, of a systemic crisis. But really what you're worried about when when you're calling something systemic, or at least when we are, we're thinking about the uh, perceived or actual insolvency of the banking system. So are we worried about the entire banking system or at least the core of the banking system's viability? Um, you know, so that distinguishes from, okay, we're in a down, we're in a macroeconomic downturn, you know, some, there's going to be some job loss, but not an insane amount of job loss. You know, some businesses are going to fail, but not because their bank failed. Um, you know, so that's more of a, a more moderate recession versus, okay, the economy is doing something crazy enough that it's going to take down the, the banking system with it. And that makes the economy much, much worse. And it's much harder to recover from. Right. So, so the, 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 the subtext is that we want to avoid a re- repetition of the 1930s depression. Exactly. Exactly. And, and 2008, which, you know, in, in its early days, the, the financial indicators were honestly much worse than than in the 1930s. And and the response was just better. It was incredibly unpopular, but it was better at putting out the fire. Right. So uh, you have a you know widely followed blog called Without Warning, uh, which in itself tells us, I guess, some of the problems we face trying to identify and, and uh, forestall systemic risk. Because the next crisis comes from somewhere we don't quite expect. Is that is that how you see things? Uh, to some degree, yes. And, and that's something we've learned, you know, unfortunately, from having effectively three uh, crises in the last 15 years with with uh, the GFC, the global financial crisis in 2008, we had COVID. And now we have, you know, sort of this mini, mini bank crisis that we had earlier in, in 2023. Um, but, you know, what obviously you can look at COVID versus 2008. And you can say, okay, this, these are two totally different crises, right? One, one really originates in the banking system. And one is, you know, you, you could say it fell from the sky, right? A, a pandemic. Um, and what we saw was the, the crisis response was, was largely the same. A lot of the stuff got dusted off in 2008. So, you know, crises, 
crises can look a lot different, um, but they have common threads and we can talk about that if you want, but also, you know, there's, there's value in having a playbook uh, no matter, no matter the source uh, because crises look different, but they have common enough threads that, that we sort of can learn how to put them out. Right. But so there are some common threads, but how have financial crisis uh, crises shifted over time? What's, you know, what's different? Uh, you, you must've looked back through history. What, you know, what have you noticed in terms of so re- what's really common it, and what's different? Yeah. I mean, uh, a lot of times, you know, what you see is it's it's the words that change. We sort of reinvent something that blew up a hundred years ago, and we reinvent it today and call it something else, and then it blows up again. I mean, that's the 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 what's common throughout crises is that is that systemic banking crises are crises of money. So a, a breakdown in something that's functioning as money, uh, and, and you know, we all we all sort of have a general familiarity with sort of the olden days of you're, you're worried about your bank not having your not having the money that you've deposited in it. So you go run and you stand in line and you get your your deposit back. I mean, you can think of your deposit as that's your form of money. You write checks on it. I mean, now now you use your card. Um, and if you had, you know, back then when it was uninsured, you had to worry about your bank and you would hear rumors and it was, you know, your town bank and you knew your banker and uh, you know, if, if you, if you saw him at the bar late, you might go, you might want to go get your money back. Um, so th- things like that. And really what we see is, is sort of a, a change over time in what, what constitutes money. Um, uh, banks used to issue their own notes. So you would have a, you know, you, you know, I might here in New Haven, Connecticut, I would have, a uh, my cash would say bank of New Haven on it and it, it would be redeemable in gold. And if I got worried about my bank, I would go get my gold back. And then it was checking deposits and, and and sort of that familiar story. And and then we got, you know, at least here in the U.S. And, and generally there's different systems around the world, but uh, some form of deposit insurance up to some limit. And then you look at 2008 and it was sort of big institutional deposits that kind of ran. Um, I'm saying deposits. We called things like uh, re- what are called repo agreements or, or commercial paper, basically this, just large cash pools that uh, were uninsured, that that became volatile and, and prone to run. And then again, in 2023, again, it was it was really uninsured deposits. So it's kind of this short-term debt story that we, we really can't avoid, uh, globally speaking. I mean, most wealth in the world is held in long-term assets. You can think of a business or a house, you know, or mortgage on that house. Um, th- these are what we have to, to back money with. I mean, we, we could go back to gold if we want another Great Depression, but then you're sort of at the mercy of uh, whatever gets dug out of the ground in a particular year. Um, so th- we sort of have an unavoidable short-term debt issue where we, we back short-term debt with long-term things, and, and that creates sort of an inherent uh, instability. Right. So the fact that, that our monetary system is based to a large part on credit makes you know, occasional panics or bank runs inevitable. Exactly. And the only issue, the only issue is there's not really something better to back money with than credit. Um, Cause you know, you can pick your favorite rock on the ground, but it's just, the, the supply of it gets so inflexible at that point. I mean, there are some people who do want to go back to a uh, gold standard or a Bitcoin standard or something yeah. similar, but, but that's not a, that's far from being a mainstream view. Yeah, definitely. And it, it's, what is mainstream is, you know, it's, it's sort of ironic. We have this expression in English, to, to call something the gold standard to me, it, it, you know, it's the best version because it, it's widely accepted that the gold standard is to blame for the Great Depression. Right. Right. Because there was no way of expanding credit once. Exactly. Started to, exactly. 
started to want their money back. Exactly. Let's talk a bit about what happened earlier this year in 2023 then, because that was in some ways a, quite an old-fashioned bank run uh, because mm. people in you know in, in aggregate suddenly wanted that. It was mainly business depositors, wasn't it, who wanted their money mm. back in a hurry, but they all kind of got together and it happened very, very quickly, doesn't it? So could you remind us of some of the, the sums involved because they were quite eye-catching, weren't they? Yeah, so we had uh, the second and third and fourth largest uh, bank failures in the U in U.S. history. Uh, in, in Europe, we had Credit Suisse, which you know was sort of hovering around six hundred billion dollars. That was a failure uh, collectively in the U.S. Those those three banks sum to about five hundred and fifty billion. Uh, so you know, big sums involved, and in the U.S., the case was really um, banks with, like you said, it was you know business depositors. So effectively, we had most basically uninsured banks, um, uninsured depositors across the board, talking north of 90% of, of deposits were uninsured. Um, that was at Silicon Valley Bank. They were, they were so, very much so, an yeah. uninsured depositor base. Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic Bank, yeah. um, which were two, uh, you know, three and two, respectively. And then uh, Signature Bank, the, the number four was, uh, you know, 80 some percent uninsured deposits. Yeah. What struck me was the speed with which things happened uh, in March this year. You know, the, the, the volumes of money that exited in a hurry were, were, were very large. And to what extent is that linked to the way we now operate the financial system? Because people are used to making electronic payments now with the, you know, the press of a, a button on their smartphone. Uh, you know, it, has the system become less stable as a result of people's ability to move money around more quickly? So I would say maybe at the margin, I don't think that's actually a big player in this story um, for a few reasons. One, it goes back to sort of what I what I started with earlier, which was, you know, really in the modern age, we're talking about large institutional depositors because smaller depositors, you know, you and I have had deposit insurance protecting us. Um, we're not thinking so much, you know, we're not necessarily so trigger happy uh, with transferring out of a bank. Uh, and, and large institutional depositors have always been quick um, and they're not using their, you know, so some corporate treasurer or some treasurer of a pension fund is not using their smartphone to transfer $20 billion out, out of a bank. So, you know, the, the story of, of apps being part of the story, I, you know, I, I don't buy so much. I mean, these were really rotted banks and, and we got news fast, but news has always spread fast across the street. It was just different that this was, you know, out West and this was uh, a different kind of business, but yeah. it, it really is an old story. But those, those corporate treasurers or you know, pension funds or whoever they were, who had money on deposit at those banks, they should have known that they were, I mean, they, they must've known that they were, if they were uninsured deposits, they were taking credit risk to those institutions. So they were not presumably not doing their job properly. Yeah, and that's certainly true. And that there were, I'm sure there were certain perks and certain advantages to leaving money there. Um, in some cases, it was required if you wanted to get loans from the, from the particular banks. Um, the other thing is just that it's it's difficult to spread your money around. In the U.S., the deposit insurance limit is $250,000. Uh, you know, if you're Apple sitting on half a trillion in cash or whatever, I mean, there's just no way. There's literally not enough banks to do that. Yeah. Um, you're talking about a couple billion dollars worth of deposit insurance if you had an account in every bank. Um, and then you want to make a payment for $10 million and you got to write 40 separate checks for $250,000. Like, it, you know, it, it's not viable. So we, we have yeah. to have other solutions, you know, to to 
keep short-term debt stability, whether that's an expansion of deposit insurance or not. Right. So a lot of that money that's sloshing around, uh, the the cash deposits of those large businesses, other institutions, is not in bank deposits. It's, it's it's, It's in money market funds, it's in treasury bills, or it's on repos. So, you know, is that, are those assets relatively safe? Because we've had some question marks this year about the safety of the, the treasury bill and treasury bond market. You know, is, is that potentially a cause of concern for you? I, I would say treasury is generally not. Yes, we sort of have this this goofiness in the U.S. with our debt ceiling and, and you know, if there's going to be a temporary default, which, which is a total own goal and, you know, um, is a historical accident basically does it does it threaten the safety of treasuries no does it threaten the liquidity of them probably and it's yeah. you know it's just stupid i mean there's no other way around it um but aside from you know generally speaking the treasury bills are are, are rock solid full faith and credit of the united states um and that's really what where the advantage is over you know you mentioned things like repo commercial paper money market funds those have sort of private solutions to generate safety you know they generate they they invest in safe assets and you know they do various they they maintain certain amounts of liquidity but they're not full faith and credit right they're not they don't have that government guarantee so if you if you put enough stress in the system you put enough uncertainty in the system you do get a run on those assets and you sort of need the treasury to come in and stand behind them and so that's why, you know, we still continue to get these runs um, because you you really can't do in the private sector what the public sector can do with guarantees. I mean, you can try your, your damnedest, but you either run out of safe stuff or it's just not safe enough um, yeah. and, and you get runs. What about the size of you know, this colossal size of the repo market, the, 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 the repo facility at the Federal Reserve? I think it was above two trillion dollars for quite a long time you know that's a, that's a lot of money sloshing around there are you you know comfortable with that is i know it's the, the the fed is on the other side of the uh, transaction but are you comfortable that that's a you know the setup there is safe yeah certainly and, and that's historically new i mean that that really was an option that did not exist you know as recently as a couple of years ago um the fed as it did as it did quantitative easing as it really injected a lot of cash into the system post covid it allowed the 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 per counterparty limits of that facility to go up, so so firms can really have large deposits at the Fed, which you know to to hold a dollar with the entity that makes dollars is perfect liquidity and perfect credit. Yeah. Um, and so that's really you know there's there's a few interesting things that come up because in the past there hasn't really been a way for dollars to leave the system, you know, aside from putting cash under your mattress, which at the corporate level is, is not possible. There's, there's no play. You can't hold a bank deposit, you know, anywhere, but a bank, you can leave your bank, but it ends up in a different bank. Um, so it's, it's disruptive, but at least that money stays in the system. So now, you know, there's sort of this, this sort of potential risk that too much money flows into the fed and the fed is going to have to actively monitor that. Um, because it is rock solid, but there's the, there's the flip side, which is if you have this super safe option, you know, that, that reduces the private sector's ability to sort of manufacture or to need to manufacture substitutes. So you sort of don't get this, oh, we have this triple A subprime mortgage backed security. That's, you know, rock that's got, it's got a triple A rating from S and P and Fitch. Um, if you're, if you're a saver, if you're a large cash pool, you can say, ah, let's just go to the fed. 
um, you know, I don't need that because I have protection from the Fed. So right. it, it's a give and take. Right. Well, which other areas of the global financial markets cause you concern when it comes to systemic risk? Well, um, I mean, the biggest thing is the fragility of the of the banking system. And, you know, where we are now relative to February 2023 globally is stable. And, you know, things have clearly calmed down relative to March to May, um, but more fragile. Uh, you, you, we sort of had this second stage of the crisis where depositors got more sensitive to interest rates and, uh, you know, started chasing higher interest rates around the system. And a lot of cash moved, you know, from medium-sized banks to bigger banks or from Credit Suisse to, you know, UBS or whatever else. Um, and this is disruptive at the margin and it, it leaves the system in a, in a less profitable position. And when you have a less profitable banking system, you have a more fragile banking system. Uh, so this that, is despite, sorry to interrupt you, Steve, but this is despite all the reforms that have been put in place since 2008, you know, with you know, higher capital ratios yeah. and, and leverage limits and all these things that the regulators have done to try and make the banking system safer. You're, you're not convinced that they've gone far enough. Uh, I wouldn't say I wouldn't use the words far enough. I would maybe say, you know, just at the I, I'm not saying it's necessarily even avoidable. At the moment, the system is just less profitable. Part of this is the goal of monetary policy. I mean, they're they're really trying to say around the world, we're trying to tighten financial conditions. And that hmm. includes banks. The the awkward thing for central banks is that they are they often have a supervisory and financial stability responsibility. So they don't really want bank failures, but certainly you know, the banks are more fragile um, and, yeah. and everything, you know, the regulations post 2008 likely made the system much safer. I mean, there's a ton of capital sitting, you know, at the core of the, of the financial system in the UK and the US and Europe. Um, and we really haven't seen, like I said at the outset, we haven't seen those banks really f have that feeling of threatened. We never thought, okay, Morgan Stanley's going to go down or Barclays is going to go down. Um, so, you know, those reforms have certainly been helpful, but the bank, the banking system is just in a fragile place because of monetary policy in particular. So it's to do with the kind of the this the, the concerns about tight monetary policy, potential recession, you know, inverted yield curve where long-term interest rates are lower than short-term ones. You know, that that's not probably the best best condition for a best market for a bank that wants to to put its money out and make right, you know, make a right. bigger margin. So so. Um, and you have very aware, you know, bank bank investors, bank depositors. Yeah. Um, the the story of these banks sometimes gets oversimplified to, oh, this was about unrealized losses or this was a monetary policy thing. I mean, really, they had really unique business models that had just rotted. You're talking about tech sectors and crypto, yeah. and you know, Credit Suisse has had its own problems for a million years, uh, yeah. and so that's why we didn't really see contagion. But it, it's it's still true that the the system is, is left in a more fragile place. Right. What do you make of the emergence of cryptocurrency and specifically stable coins? Because they've, they've, they're they a kind of a new type of um, monetary asset, I guess is the right word. It's mm -hmm. a, kind of a, an updated version of a money market fund where you can place your money on a, in a tokenized deposit with no interest rate, but uh, you, know, it's, you know, you can move it around quickly. Mm -hmm. um, has that added any risks to the system? 
I would say certainly the structure adds risk. Thankfully, um, you know, from a macroeconomic perspective, the size has continued to be small uh, of, of the stablecoin space. The, the broader crypto asset space, I'm, you know, I'm comfortable saying that that is both not a systemic risk and not the future of money. Um, the volatility and, you know, it, it, it has its own problems and it, it's almost, you know, it's a joke at the margin for sure. Um, but stable coins are interesting because the, you know, it's, it's almost a trope to say at this point, but the tech is good. Um, the, the payment technology, putting, putting dollars on a blockchain is, you know, really going to be important to the future of the economy. And, and the thing with these non-bank stable coins, so tether and circle and, they're still using the banking system. I mean, their 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 reserves are held in the banking system. They're held in in money market funds, which go to the banking system. So the whole like, you know, Satoshi ideas of we're going to leave the banks behind is is the exact opposite of what stablecoins are doing. They're they're importing existing structures. Go ahead, Paul. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about you know why why you think they're important. Is it because they settle so quickly, so you can you can move money from person A to person B with near immediate settlement yes the, the quick that, settlement is that, is that the big deal the quick settlement is big as well as the 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 way blockchains can work is you can sort of get com information confirmation without human intervention so a lot of especially cross-border transactions require a human intervention at some point to confirm um, and you could sort of avoid that on the blockchain the other big thing is to the extent you can get physical goods, um, on the same rails as money is a big deal. I mean, right now I could do, I could drop a shipment uh, at your front door on a Saturday and not get my money till Tuesday. Um, and you know we have we have some contract that has our transfer of ownership. We have some you know money transaction that we did maybe with Venmo or something that works on the weekend. And then we have the actual settlement which happens on the on the payment rails behind it which in our case would even be cross-border. So we're probably not getting until the following Tuesday, actually. Um, so to the extent we can have transfer of ownership where I can say, okay, this, this thing that I just dropped at your door now belongs to Paul and the money belongs to me and it moves into my account where I can spend it today, um, that's super valuable. And that's very possible because of the blockchain. And it goes with, with um, you know, financial assets too. If you can get securities on the blockchain, uh, you know, you, you don't get securities piled up. You don't get GameStop style things where there's yeah. sort of a three day delay and all this risk builds up um, over settlement, basically. Yeah. So you made the, you made the point a few minutes ago that the stable coin operators like Tether, like Circle, they're they're still dependent uh, behind the scenes on the banking system to mm -hmm. move money around. In fact, some of you know they were they were I think in, in most cases clients of those failed mm -hmm. some of those failed U.S. banks uh, from earlier this year. Um, but look at what about from the other end of the spectrum of the traditional banks, you know, how much progress are they making in making their offering look a bit more like the stable coins, you know, tokenizing deposits and uh, moving towards the, you know, the, the, the way it's, it's, it's arrived from the crypto side. Yeah. I, I really do see that as sort of the, the end game here is because, uh, you know, any non-bank stable coin has one major shortcoming, which is they don't, they're not bank money. So it's sort of like, like using Venmo or something where you, you can, you, you have a representation of a transfer, but then if you want to spend that money, you send it into your bank account. And that's what 
the stable coins don't have. And that's what JP Morgan or Citigroup or Barclays could have overnight with theirs is, you know, I, I'm, it, it's just like writing a check and depositing a check and that's spendable money. Um, so they, they have, they hold the deposit ledger, right? They can make payments in bank money. So really the, you know, they have a huge advantage and, you know, they're, they're highly regulated banks. So they're going to move slowly as far as implementation, but they are coming along, particularly JP Morgan has their JPM coin, um, which, which is expanding. And, you know, really what this should be, especially for you and I, is we don't see this infrastructure, you know, like think about now how, you know, we swipe our cards or we use our app, we use our phone to make payments. We're not thinking really about the rails and which rail it's being sent on yeah. um, and, and all this stuff, um, you know, and, and sometimes it matters when the money lands and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, and, and this will be another one of those things. It'll just be infrastructure that we don't see that the banks are running. Um, and, and it'll it'll make lives better, particularly those who where you know, it really matters when the money lands. Um, right. But but when you then um, try to knit together all these different systems from you know the different national uh, currency areas, it becomes it becomes you know it's already quite a complex thing that's happening behind the scenes. It's uh, you know it becomes quite a potentially complex infrastructure, global infrastructure. Yeah, and, and it almost seems like that may be the first place we see it is really between central banks um, as sort of the last leg of international transfers that you know central banks get involved and, and or correspondent banks will get involved. Um, and that seems like really the first place where we could see some innovation and get central banks and regulators comfortable with it. And then, you know, they'll let the, the, the banks go wild with it. Yeah. I wanted to, before we finish, uh, Stephen, I wanted to ask you a bit about um, sustainability and ESG, because I saw mm -hmm. you both on Twitter a week or two ago about, uh, I think you were, talking about plotting ESG initiatives against the Fed funds rates and pointing out that there, a lot of these initiatives may have been really, a bit like crypto in a way, uh, you know, came out at the time when money was basically free. Mm -hmm. um, what, what, you know, what do you make of that area? Because it's, you know, that, that whole, whole type of um, financial you know, investment or financial instruments associated with it are, you know, they're moving very large sums of money around the world now. And you know, is that a cause for, systemic risk concern or is that just something that you you're keeping an eye on more generally yeah i i would say it's not a systemic risk concern i i would say it's a it's the thing with esg is it's a really bad way to solve what is a very serious crisis globally you know we typically associate esg with climate right which is a super important like possibly the biggest issue facing the human race like on a go forward basis um and so to 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 pin our hopes to some degree on something that you know we're seeing is quite cyclical, um, just really it's just a uh, is ignorant I guess of of public policymakers you know to sort of care so much about what Larry Fink at BlackRock is doing with ESG like it's just really not his job and and you know that's what we're gonna you you simply can't you can't sell the pitch that considering non-investment factors improves investment returns. It's just by definition, it just does not. I mean, hmm. it's great if that's what you want to do. You know, you say, I don't want my portfolio to, you know, invest in, in weapons or whatever. Great. But you might sacrifice some return. And 
so the the other part of ESG that's always been flawed is this idea of like, oh, we are we are really thinking about you know the climate crisis and we're therefore we're going to get extra returns. No, I mean yeah. any any profit hungry investor is always thinking about climate risk and whatever else. And you know maybe they'll sell umbrellas to 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 make money in the climate crisis. Like they'll find their own way. So the story that this was somehow going to be more profitable. And this really, it really extends to banks too, because there's also kind of a story being told uh, by ESG folk that really, oh, this is the next Lehman Brothers, um, which, you know, the, the last Lehman Brothers we had moment we had was Lehman Brothers. And, you know, it'll, the next one will probably look a lot like it. Um, climate is not going to overnight take down the financial system. It's a huge yeah. risk to the whole world. Um, and it's, it's here. I mean, it, hundred percent is already here, but it, it's just not that it's not that risk. It does. It's not a run on the financial system overnight. So solving it through finance just really is not yeah. the way. Yeah. And, and a final question, Stephen, it, it, you know, you talked earlier about the current economic conditions and the recent rate rises we've been having. Um, you know, if you had to combine everything you're looking at and everything you're hearing into a single you know, signal from uh, green to amber to red alert for a systemic crisis. Where, you know, where do you think we are on the scale currently? Uh, I'd say we're we're at uh, maybe light green, yellow green. Uh, the the sort of oxymoronic phrase I've been using is stable but fragile. Um, so we are we are in a good spot. If we stick with the status quo, I think we'll be fine. There's always a risk of of a blow up, and then you see the fragilities play out. Um, if there's some hidden blow up that nobody sees right now, and then it sort of spreads to the fragilities that we do see, that's sort of a risk. Thank you very much for taking the time to chat to me. It's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Pleasure's been mine, Paul. Thanks for listening to this New Money Review podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like it or share it on your podcast listening platform. If you'd like to support New Money Review, you can do so using Patreon. Details of how to do so are on the right margin of our website, newmoneyreview.com. Listen in soon for our next episode. 